you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Previously on California City. I mean, do you, do you really think that anybody could just snap and kill their wife? <laughs> um. You have 60 seconds remaining. There's no one in this story who is as proud or as disgraced as Ken Donnie. Ken helped thousands of people get their money back in California City. And then 18 years later, Ken murdered his wife. It's hard to hold both of these versions of him in my head, but both are true. And that's the reason I want to tell you about Ken's crime. Because he's the most extreme example of something I've noticed about almost everyone I talk to for this story. Heroes can be villains. Victims can be perpetrators. No one is all bad or all good. I'm Emily Guerin, and you're listening to California City, Episode 4. A quick warning about this episode, it does contain graphic descriptions of violence. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I'd been putting off asking Ken Donnie about the murder. Instead, I'd asked him all about the fraudulent way that Nat Mendelssohn sold land in California City. I'd asked him about the student program and the tool lots, the salesman's lies and misrepresentations, the Federal Trade Commission's punishment. I'd had more than a dozen calls with him. You have a prepaid call from... Ken for Emily. Ken for Emily. Ken for Emily. Howdy. I'm back. Ken for Emily. Emily. It's Ken. Emily. Emily for Ken Ken. Encore. But by the 21st minute of our seventh phone call, I couldn't avoid it any longer. I, I need to explain to the listeners the reason that you're in prison. Ah. And so I wanted to know what you would like to say about that. Well, first of all, you were starting to fade away um, uh, a little bit. So I don't know if you changed. Uh, you're on a cell phone, right? He spent the next minute trying to hear me better. Although he could have been deflecting. Okay. So, so, can, can you hear me now? Yeah, I hear you, but, but barely. 
Interesting question. Uh, again, I was advised by some lawyers not to even do this at all, this podcast interview at all, just for the simple reason that um, high-profile anything is, is never a good thing for a prisoner. Ken worries about his safety in prison. This one time, another inmate bashed his face in with a mop handle. And he'd only been locked up for a year when someone slit his throat and he needed emergency surgery. He believes he was attacked because he's a former federal prosecutor. I'd like to say, uh, really, at this moment, my, I'd just like to say no comment. Ken never did tell me exactly what happened. But I read all four of his parole hearing transcripts, plus a bunch of newspaper articles, which is how I know everything I'm about to tell you. In the summer of 1995, when Ken was 49 years old, his wife Nina told him she wanted a divorce. They both worked at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley. He'd taken a job at the law school, and she worked in fundraising. But Nina was unfulfilled. She had a PhD. She wanted to be an academic. She told Ken she wanted to move out of state to get a teaching job. And Ken thought she wanted to take the children with her. And he couldn't handle it. He stopped eating. He stopped sleeping. He refused to move out of the house. He tried to talk her out of it, but it wasn't working. What happened just after 2 a.m. on the morning of October 27th is really gruesome. Nina's mother believes Nina was asleep in the study when Ken walked in and stabbed her 29 times with a chef's knife. Their son, Phil, told the police he heard his mom screaming, I don't want to die. He said he heard his dad scream back, you should have thought of that before. For years, Ken said he didn't remember the details. But at his first parole hearing in 2008, he told the commissioners he and Nina were arguing when she came at him with the knife. He said he grabbed the blade and then blacked out. Ken pled guilty to second-degree murder. He said he didn't want to put his kids through a trial. A judge sentenced him to 16 years to life in prison. He's been locked up for 24. There's a story Ken often told me about something the judge said during his sentencing. And I think it says a lot about Ken. The judge said, What happened to Mr. Donnie can happen to anybody, quote unquote. He went on to, and there's a cautionary tale there. What did he mean by that? What happened to Mr. Donnie can happen to anyone? In other words, um, he'd seen it happen before, maybe not in, to the, in the exact same way. But in other words, none of us, I mean, that could be the title of, of a memoir for me. It could happen to anyone. It could happen to anybody. Meaning that... Can you... What's it? The tragedy that occurred. The reason I'm in prison. But is it something that happened to you? Look, that's, those were his words. And... Um, no, and I, 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 under, I understand that. I guess my... I guess the way... My initial reaction to that is... Yeah, sort please. Of framing it as... Well, framing it as it could happen to anyone or it happened, it sort of takes the agency out of it. It's like a thing that, that happened. I know. And not a thing that I know. you did. I know. And I didn't say that. 
the judge did. So he must have had his reasons. The rhetoric that you just used with regard to agency, with regard to concepts of free will or the lack thereof, uh, and so on. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess less free will and more just responsibility? Well, I pled guilty. I took responsibility. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You can't really take more responsibility than putting yourself in prison. To Ken, the federal prosecutor, pleading guilty is the ultimate form of accepting responsibility. It is showing remorse. Actions speak louder than words, Ken said at his third parole hearing. It's ineffable. And maybe that would be true if Ken didn't also imply, with his words, that Nino was partially to blame. I possibly could have won a manslaughter and been out in 11 years. Hmm. All right? I, I knew that. Um, and nevertheless, and you obviously don't know any of the circumstances of the prelude and so on and so forth for what happened, but you, you don't know the whole story, but bottom line is this, despite my having other choices available to me, I felt too much sorrow and remorse. Uh, I'd taken another life. I read through all four of the transcripts of Ken's parole hearings, and I see it again and again. Ken referring to the murder as the tragedy that occurred, or what happened, or a failure. A failure, like stepping on the gas instead of a brake and killing a pedestrian. It could happen to anyone. The parole commissioners picked up on this, and they used it as justification for keeping Ken locked up. We fail at things all the time, sir, one commissioner said. But the taking of a human life rises to a much higher degree than failure. And it's noteworthy you chose that word. And ordinarily, we don't nitpick words when it comes to our hearings. But it's noteworthy that we're not speaking to an unintelligent man, suggesting you don't choose your words lightly. I felt like if Ken wouldn't say what he did, I had to. And I've actually been thinking a lot about what the judge said um, I mean, do you, do you really think that anybody could just snap and kill their wife? <laughs> um, you have 60 seconds remaining. That's what a judge who had been a, a family law judge before he became a criminal law judge said. So I'm not going to disagree with him. Ken gets three 15-minute phone calls each time we talk. We had time for one more. So we hung up. I didn't think he would call back, given what I just asked him. But then, 50 seconds later... This is Global Telling. You have a prepaid call from... And Emily. An inmate at this California healthcare facility, Stockton, California. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Telling. Hello? Are you there? Hello, I'm here. Yeah, so to uh, finish my thought, um, it in no way, Emily, and I, I think you're, you might be misjudging what I'm telling you versus how I'm feeling. Okay. Right? 
Ken worried I didn't understand how he felt about the tragedy that occurred. He said he wasn't the kind of person who showed emotion, especially in public. And I'm not on a radio interview in a room full of other inmates and guards prancing around and noise. You can't possibly believe that my ability to emote in this interview with you is not somehow affected by the circumstances in which we're talking. Uh, So don't take what I'm saying in any way, Emily, as minimizing what I consider to be my offense. The first three times Ken was up for parole, they denied him. But on May 8th, 2019, something changed. That's after a break. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Ken's parole hearings have a certain rhythm. First, the commissioners have everyone in the room introduce themselves. Front row, lawyers. Back row, friends and family. Ken's son, Phil. Nina's sister, Abby. Then, the commissioners go over paperwork. Ken's behavior in prison, his anger management and victims' awareness classes, the psychologist's assessment that Ken is at low risk of reoffending if he gets out. Then they start rehashing Ken's marriage and the events leading up to the murder. But in Ken's fourth parole hearing, the way he talked about the crime, I don't know, it just felt different. Whereas before, he might mention that Nina wasn't taking her medication or how he'd been in a near-catatonic state on the night of the murder, or how he'd lost 30 pounds. This time, he didn't offer any excuses. He said, quote, I murdered Nina. I did it, and I'm forever ashamed, and there's nothing I can do to remedy that. I was in a rage about her not loving me anymore and wanting to leave. I was controlling. I was manipulative. Angry. This time, he said he was the one who'd grabbed the knife out of a box while they were arguing. He'd been packing up the kitchen, preparing to move out. I was really surprised. I mean, it was such a reversal from the tragedy that occurred. And at the end of the three-hour and 40-minute hearing, the parole commissioners decided to grant him parole. I laid my head on on my forearm on the table and, and 
sobbed for, you know, a couple of minutes while the commissioner continued his decision. I talked to Ken two days after his parole hearing. I'm on cloud nine. I'm in seventh heaven. I'm happy. I'm grateful. I'm relieved. And I have nothing but hope, which, you know, prior to the hearing, I didn't have. But Ken wasn't out yet. In California, the governor can deny the parole of anyone in prison on a life sentence. So for three months, from May until August of 2019, Ken waited anxiously to see if Governor Gavin Newsom was going to let him out. In July, I went to visit him in prison. Officially, my visit was to fact check. Unofficially, it was because I was curious. What did Ken look like? Would his voice sound different? Would he be more open with me in person? As I drove up Highway 99 through the Central Valley, I thought about all the hours we'd spent on the phone. How are you? Um, fair to Midland. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> how's, your, how's your morning so far? Oh, it's just been a thrill a minute. Um, I w- wish you were here, as we say on the shores of Tahiti. His favorite brand of prison coffee. Keefe. K-E-E-F-E. It's a freeze-dried instant coffee. His sexist compliments. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way. Good girl. Uh, it seems silly <laughs> saying good, good lady or good woman or whatever. Good All job. Right, it works, too. Good <laughs> job. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. His own thoughts on death and God. You know the prayer... Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Have you ever heard that prayer? Yeah. Okay. Well, as a kid and later, I always thought that was a little morbid about the if I die before I wake business. I mean, I'm not the only one to think of that. It's been said many times by many different people. Yeah. So I decided to uh, compose a, a counterpart to that prayer. As a, as, a, as a possible replacement for kids especially. And it goes like this. Dear loving God, with your sweet might, please stay with me throughout the night. Help me sleep and dream away till I wake up with you to pray. Amen. And that is entitled Dream Away. At 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning in July, I arrived. I was wearing the outfit that I'd selected based on the prison guard's recommendations. No red, orange, blue, or green to avoid being confused for an inmate or a guard. No underwire bra. No electronics, so I couldn't record. No cup of coffee for Ken to save him from Keefe. Ten pieces of paper only. Nine $1 bills in a Ziploc bag. Inside, the visitor's waiting room was filled with women, small children, and hard plastic chairs. I checked in at the desk, where a guard cataloged my accessories. One hairband, two earrings, and a watch. I lifted my shirt and the cuffs of my pants and walked through a metal detector. I stepped through a series of doors that closed behind me before another one opened. I followed a long sidewalk to another building, and a guard buzzed me into the visiting room. An old man with olive skin, bushy eyebrows, and crazy Beethoven hair was waving at me from a table. Ken. He was smaller than I imagined, 
and his voice was softer than it was on the phone. I offered to buy coffee, so we walked over to the vending machine, which was behind a thick red line that only I could cross. When Ken stepped on it, a guard barked at him to move back. We sat down with styrofoam cups and a pack of powdered donuts. A prison guard handed me a freshly sharpened pencil, and I pulled out my 10 sheets of paper with facts about Ken that needed checking. Without the time restrictions of the prison phone calls, Ken went into professor mode, lecturing me on the fine details of his life. It was, it was exhausting. And after three hours, I was completely drained. At the end, Ken asked for a photo. He flagged down the inmate who carried around a point-and-shoot camera, and I handed over the tokens I'd purchased at the front desk. We stood with our shoulders nearly touching, in front of a large abstract painting, and Ken told the guy over and over, count to three before you press the shutter, as if he had never held a camera before. The photo seemed like a perfect time to say goodbye. I folded my 10 sheets of paper, I returned my pencil, and I told Ken I had a six-hour drive ahead of me. But Ken didn't get the hint. He asked about public radio. He asked if I'd ever considered becoming a lawyer. I was a sponge, and he was a strong pair of hands, wringing every last drop out of me. In early August of 2019, Ken got word, parole denied. In a letter explaining why, Governor Newsom said he was still troubled by Ken's lack of insight into his crime. Until he can explain why he violently murdered his wife, he remains a danger to society. Ken is appealing the decision. Because Ken has been locked up since 1995, he had no idea what was happening in California City. Ken had no idea that salesmen at Silver Saddle were selling a modern-day version of Nat Mendelssohn's dream. He had no idea that state investigators believe more than 2,000 people have spent nearly $60 million on that dream in the past eight years alone. He didn't know that the guy in charge of it all, the president of Silver Saddle, was someone he'd met years ago during his negotiations with Great Western Cities. No one in California City is all bad or all good. California City is written and reported by me, Emily Guerin. Arwen Champion Nix, James Kim, and Mike Kessler edited and produced this episode. Mixing by Valentino Rivera. Original music by Andrew Epen. Andrew also set Ken's prayer to music. California City is a production of LAist Studios. 
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.